I don't want to ask if you're well, because by the sounds of that worship, you are doing great. <laughs> and so thank you to the worship team. It's such a privilege um, to be with family who love Jesus, <laughs> who are passionate about the King, who love His presence, who value His presence, who desire not just more of Him, but all of Him. Yeah. Hey, come on, Lord, all of you, everything that you have. And that passionate pursuit of the King, oh, man, it's worth more than all the gold. It's worth more than all the platinum and the silver and the copper, whatever you can gather together. A passionate pursuit of the king is such a valuable, valuable thing. So thank you for having us. And uh, I, I kind of was trying to figure out how to say this this morning, but I just love your pastors. Gary and Louise are just the most wonderful people. They are so humble. And they're so gracious, and they're so kind, and they're so much fun to be with. And Cor and I, just every time we get to hang out with you guys, we just like you more. You're cool. Like, even if you weren't pastors and we were in a ministry, we'd want to be friends with you. you know? and, um, and I want to say to you um, as a family, don't, don't undervalue who they are. And I, they're not paying me to say this, but there's something about the privilege of walking under the authority of humble servants of God that will radically alter not just the course of your life, but the value of your life and will determine the depth to which you encounter God. All through the scriptures, God empowers men and women and he is held to account by nobody for his choice. <laughs> and he anoints those men and those women. And as God draws people to them, they begin to live in the grace that's on their lives. It's something radical happens. I say that to say, as a family life house, honor them and with a confident expectation, look for all that God wants to manifest in this house because of what he, what he has gathered together. And come with a passionate sense. God, you've got something for us. There's something unique about this house. There's something so beautiful about this place. Every time we've come, it's even on a Catalyst Connect night, like it's on a Thursday, random Thursday in the month we gather. There is something so beautiful about the presence of God in this house. And so don't ever become too familiar with it, that you don't value it in the, in the highest possible way. Because it's a real privilege. It's a real privilege together with others um, in this way. So thank you for having us again. We really do love and appreciate you guys. And um, cool. So as a way of introduction, I'm just going to share this. We're going to show a quick little video because I just want to show you how amazing this church is. So we did have the wonderful privilege of having Willem and a gang of guys come down. I say gang because there were 19 of them. And they came down and they were just a wonderful blessing to our community and, uh, and to uh, not just our church community, but our community at large. And so they, they, get, they got to hang out with us and they led the evening service on the, on the Sunday night and it was good. Uh, it was really good. And so I just want to show you a testimony. This is a, a good friend of ours. We've been friends with this lady. She actually was my church administrator for many years. And uh, they've been in our fellowship or with us for 10 years, as long as we've been leading um, this group of people. Um, they've been with us. And oh, goodness me. That's so unnecessary. 
Because if you look at that photo and you look at my face, you're going, things have changed. <laughs> so, so I just want you to listen to this. this is the, she is the most sweet lady. She loves Jesus so passionately. And, um, and yeah, just listen to her testimony. I might fill in some of the gaps. But It's been two years that I've been uh, battling with my right shoulder. And I was not being able to um, move my arm freely. And simple tasks like tying my hair or reaching for an item or even putting on an item of clothing and taking it out was becoming very difficult for me and very, very painful. On the 24th of September, um, we had a group of people come from Lifehouse to minister to us here at Amantum Tori, and they were taking over the evening service. I would not have ordinarily been at that service, however, God knew what he was doing that evening and it made it possible for me to be here. And I remember during the service, there was a tangible presence of God in the room. And I just remember a villain coming and speaking over the mic and just saying, you know, he's here, do you feel him? And saying like, you know, he's here, do you see him? He's touching someone on their right shoulder. And even though I was in the building, I could not I could hear what was happening around me. I didn't respond to that in that moment because I was just being intimate and going after Jesus. And I remember after worship, we were doing some activation stuff and I just kept on moving my arm just to see whether it was me that Jesus was touching that evening or whether it was someone else in the room that was feeling that healing moment. By the end of the service, I was not experiencing as much pain as I used to experience. And that the pain threshold at that moment was between three to five percent. But I could do so much more with my arm. I was able to, like, you know, just tie my hair back. I was able to reach across my shoulder. I was able to reach, you know, just below my rib cage. As I went home that evening, I just began to linger longer and just worship him and fell asleep in that moment, listening to the song, Holy Forever. And I remember waking up the next morning and I had no pain in my arms. And I just was so grateful to God because I know that even though I, was, I did not come that evening expecting to be healed, I just came here to, to listen to a group of people that love Jesus and serve Jesus. But even just being with Jesus and being intimate with Him, He restored my, my shoulder. And there were still movements that I could not do, where I could not like reach to the back of my, to, to my back. But by two Sundays later, I was able to uh, place my, my right arm on my lower back and even further without any pain, any assistance or any discomfort. And I just want to give praise, glory and honor to Jesus for what he's done. Yes, I am trusting him for full and complete healing. And I know that what he has begun, he will complete it. And I just give him praise, glory and honor for that. Thank you. <laughs> awesome, come on. Someone got healed. Like no medicine. Just the presence and the glory of God. I'm going to be painful and say we can do better than that. 
Come on, let's give him praise. Let's give him praise. Not a made up thing, but God, thank you. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that glorious? I didn't say this, but somebody else said it. I thought it was really good. What you honor in the kingdom will multiply. What you honor in the kingdom of God will multiply. And so when we, when we value what he does, and so Vanessa, for two years, she could not type her hair. She couldn't use her right arm like that. And in that moment, God just set her free, just so beautifully, so wonderfully, and so powerfully. And I want to say to you, family, that that is what God does. And say thank you to Lifehouse for coming. Because Vanessa's miracle was tied up with you being there. Isn't that beautiful? You know, in Acts chapter 3, there was a man who sat at the gate, beautiful. He was put there by his friends. We don't know how long he had sat there, but man, it seems like it had been a long time. It's easy for us to assume that Jesus walked past him. Because Jesus had been up at that temple. He had walked through that place. He had gone in to pray like all the other Jews had prayed. And just like Peter and John had walked past him before, I'm telling you, Jesus had walked past that man before. But on that day in Acts chapter 3, what happens? Peter and John get asked the question, have you got any money for us? Or for me? <laughs> Multiple personalities he did not have. <laughs> but he asked for some money, and they said, we don't have any money. And then they pray for him, and he gets radically healed. And I say, well, Lord, what was that about? I mean, Jesus passed him. Why did you, Jesus, why did you leave him that way? But I want to say to you, God has ordained moments for his glory. And Jesus doesn't want to take... Um, be careful I say this, but Jesus is not the kind of person, he's not an egomaniac that he needs everything to happen through him. He actually delights in doing things with you and through you. It's a life house you must know that God has ordained you to be a blessing to the nations, to be a blessing wherever you go, that you carry the presence of God. And so thank you for coming. Thank you for being there and having fun with us. And it was, it was a great time. We really enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed the testimony. Vanessa certainly did. She's super excited, but awesome. We're going to get into today's message. What time do we land? Because I, want to, because I don't want to talk too long. I want to pray in. Finish by 11. That's a lot of time to give a pastor. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's do this. We'll, let's take some time. Let's see what God does. And we just value and honor his presence. Hey. And so to Gary's like, what have I done? Just giving this man too much rope here. But no, let's, let's just do this. Just for a moment, close your eyes. And, um, and we've, we've honored Jesus so beautifully in this place. But just for a few moments, I just want to... King Jesus, it really is the most wonderful privilege to gather together like this as a family in your presence to be taught by your spirit to be strengthened, to be encouraged, to have our faith infused with your strength, for our faith to deepen, for gifts and calling and purpose to come to the fore. I thank you, King Jesus, that by your Spirit, you are moving in this place, that I am not the teacher here this morning. You are. And I thank you that you knit to the hearts of your people the Word of God, and that it produced the fruit of faithfulness, of righteousness, of holiness, of a transformed life that lives in obedience to you, revealing your glory to the nations. King Jesus, be honored in our, in our midst. Be glorified in our midst. 
Holy Spirit. We sung about it. Gary led us in prayer about it. And we ask you again, pour out a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Scriptures say, in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Today in this place, Holy Spirit, would you allow us to see the Son more accurately. May we see the wonder and the beauty and the splendidness of who you are, Father. And may our hearts respond with love and adoration and affection and a humble obedience to say, our lives belong to you, King Jesus. Therefore, your glory, therefore, your fame, and therefore, your honor. We love and adore you. Just for a moment, you commune with the Holy Spirit. Express the desire of your heart for him to show you Jesus. For him to reveal the Father to you. You ask him. For some of you in that moment, God began to say things and show you things and just speak to your heart. And I wanted to say as we lead into this, communion with him is so easy. <laughs> God is not hiding from us. I'm allowed to come at you. Sometimes they just stay, stay behind. You know. God is not hiding from us. When the Bible says that we are to seek God, it's not because he's lost. It's not because he's, he's hidden himself. That word seek speaks to desire. It, it speaks about a passionate pursuit of God. And so the Bible encourages us to seek him. There's something about our pursuit of him that, that causes him in joy to respond to us. And if God's going to give you the greatest gift he could ever give you, he has to give you himself. And his promise is to make himself known. His delight is to reveal himself to you. And so there's no trade-off here. There's no struggle with God. There's no kind of having to twist his arm. He doesn't have one, by the way. <laughs> He's a spirit, eh? Bad pastor joke. Anyway, the point is, is that as we pursue him, his delight is to reveal himself. And in the revealing of himself, in the, in the, in the, in the knowledge of God, is life and peace and joy and strength and courage and every good thing is in him. And our lives are radically transformed, not necessarily by our doing, but by our beholding. <laughs> by our looking and being mesmerized and amazed and, and just astounded by the wonder of who he is. It is the privilege of man to look upon God. It really is. Isaiah tells us, and this scripture has been quoted so many times in, in churches all over the world. Hey, then Isaiah sees the throne. He sees the angels flying around God. Just they're looking at him. They're adoring him. And they're just crying out, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as we kind of run into the things, you know, I just realized just as a rabbit trail, when we preach, sometimes we, we, um, we leave things we say undefined. And so that means it could mean anything. So for the sake of this message, I want to just define holiness very simply as, as the uniqueness of God. As the, some theologians will call it the otherness of God, that God is completely other than we are, in that He is separate, He's perfect. Holiness speaks of His absolute perfection, His flawlessness, His wonder. And so when the angels look upon Him, they're going, Who are you? Look, really, look at you. Look how wonderful you are. Look how that we've never seen such beauty. We've never been so astounded by such glory and magnificence. Look at you. They're going, holy, holy, holy. And, and, and by, all, by all understanding, this has been going on for all eternity. Yeah. And we go, what a wonderful scripture. I'm going, what is going on here? What is it about God that, he is, that the angels have been captivated by him for all of eternity? That they're looking upon his uniqueness and his perfection, and they are mesmerized by him. They are completely enamored with the beauty and the wonder and the splendidness of God. He is holy, holy, holy. In the Song of Solomon, in Song of Solomon 4, verse 7, there's this beautiful scripture. I was praying a while ago, and just as I was worshiping the Lord, I was kind of doing that. I've got a, I don't know about you guys, but I use my Bible mostly um, on my iPad just because it's so amazing. I can just look at a Greek word or a Hebrew word. I can do a rabbit trail somewhere, you know, all those kind of things, hyperlink, and I'm finding other scriptures. And I'm just worshiping and praising the Lord. I'm reading the Psalms, and I found this little link, and I'm like, okay, there's a bunch of scriptures that relate to this. I go and check on them, and I'm just worshiping God, the Father and just loving on Jesus, just having a moment with Him. And I run into the scripture in the Song of Solomon, Solomon 4 verse 7. And it says this, it says, you are, you are all together beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Isn't that beautiful? And so I know that this book, the book, the Song of Solomon is about, you know, marriage or, you know, fellowship between a husband and a wife and all those kinds of things. And, you know, it's age restricted. And so if you under 18, you should not be reading the book. Yeah, deal. But, but I'm just like, and, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I, I begin to say this to, to Jesus. And it was a little bit weird at first, because I'm like, you're altogether beautiful, my love. But he is my love. He is. No one. I mean, I have this beautiful wife. She's amazing. I get the privilege of traveling with her. But she, she, and she's, she's like, just about perfect. I would say perfect, but she gets upset about that. But she's just about perfect. And yet she has never loved me like Jesus loves me. And she has come and whispered little things in my ear and made me cry. That's how much she has loved me. And yet she has not loved me like he's loved me. He is my love. I just found myself just going, you're all together beautiful, my love. And there is no flaw in you. There is, there is no flaw in you. He is faultless. He is perfection. He's holy. He's holy, and he is perfect in every single way. In every conceivable way, he is perfect and glorious. And then he is glorious in ways, and he is holy and perfect in ways we haven't yet discovered. But he is mesmerizing nonetheless. 
And you see, this is the wonder of who he is. And this is what we've been invited into, a relationship with a perfect one, the perfect one, the holy one, the just one, the merciful one, the kind one, the compassionate one, the holy one. And he is glorious. Am I making my point? (laughs) He is just glorious. He is just glorious. And so he is holy. He is holy. He is holy. I wonder what it looked like for the church to be as captivated with his beauty as the angels are. What would it look like if your life and my life began to behold the splendidness of who he is? How would we live differently? How would we live just caught up in everything that he is? So he's holy. He's perfect and he's holy and he's glorious. I want you to go with me quickly to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 33. Genesis 33. Sorry, not Genesis. Exodus 33. My apologies. If you go to Genesis, you're in the wrong place. Exodus 33 and verse 12. So I'm going to take you to this, this portion of Scripture just to define something else as we jump in to this message this morning. I'm not going to read all of this. We'll just set it up. So Moses, Moses is speaking to the Lord, and they're wanting to go into the promised land. And Moses wants God's presence. He wants, his, he wants more of him. He's like, you know, Lord, give us your presence. Show us who you are. And in verse 18, he says to the Lord, he says, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. Then he said, God said, God spoke to Moses in response to Moses's, to Moses, to Moses's, to Moses' desire to see his glory. He's like, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see you. And God responds, and God says to Moses, He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see my face and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, so it shall be while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And will cover you with my hand and I will pass by and then I will take away my hand and you will see my back. But my face shall not be seen. So in this portion of scripture, Moses asks to see God's glory. And God says, you want to see my glory? I will show you my goodness. I'll show you my goodness. Glory, goodness. God, can I see your glory? Let me show you my goodness. Now. We're playing a big rugby game this evening. So I'd like to just spend the next half an hour praying in the spirit for the spirit. So I'm just teasing. <laughs> but, I, but I have it a guess that everybody in this room knows what a rugby ball looks like. Okay. So we know what a rugby ball looks like. And, and actually describe a rugby ball to somebody, is pretty, it's pretty easy. Hey, Who thinks that they'll be able to explain what a rugby ball looks like? Maybe we should go with a soccer ball. Hey, it's a little easier but it doesn't work so well with what's going on this evening. But if you had to explain to somebody what a soccer ball looks like, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to explain. You know? But how do we explain God's goodness? 
How do we explain His beauty? Or maybe, maybe, maybe say this. How do we explain God's beauty? How is God beautiful? How is He beautiful? How, do, how would you explain the beauty of God to somebody? You see, explaining an, or defining an object or explaining an object or trying to help somebody understand an object is fairly easy. But to define something as subjectively as beauty is, is a little bit different, hey? But the reality is, you know, Gary and I could go on a hike and we, you know, maybe it's the end of the day and it's kind of the sun setting. We have a look and, and Gary says, Wes, that's beautiful. I go, man, Gary, yeah, absolutely. That is beautiful. We have a similar de- definition for beauty, hey? It's like, okay, we're getting a picture. Okay, this, maybe this is... Maybe we can, this is what beauty looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe we invite Gary and Louise to, to Amazing Tony. They come down and we stand on the beach and we look at this, the ocean early in the morning and it's just magnificent. And, and Gary goes, man, wait, this is beautiful. I'm like, absolutely, Gary, this, this is beautiful. And we start going, oh, we have a definition for beauty. But we see that beauty together. We begin to define that beauty. So beauty in an essence is, is more easily defined by what you see and experience and encounter than by a, a, a dictionary definition. Does that make sense? So the reality is what, 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 um, what Moses was asking was he was asking for an encounter. <laughs> he was asking for, for something beyond what he even could understand or articulate. Lord, I want to see your glory. You see, when we ask God to see his glory, what we're asking for is an encounter with his beauty. An encounter with his splendidness, with his goodness. Now, in this portion of Scripture, this is the only time in, in the Old Testament where God's self-revelation is tied to goodness. It's a profound thing. Theologians look at this portion of Scripture and they go, this is marvelous. And they write copious amounts of pages of trying to unravel this thing. Because they're going, this is the first self-revelation of God where he says, you want to know me? Then I'll show you my goodness. You will know me by my goodness. So I want to give you a couple of definitions of glory. John Piper. You have no problem with John Piper in this church. Okay, all right. No, that's fine. I just, you know, some, you go places, you quote somebody, they're like, hey, afterwards I get into trouble. But nonetheless, he's a great theologian. Don't agree with everything that he says. He probably doesn't agree with a lot of that I say, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to quote him anyway. All right. He says this. He says, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It's the manifest beauty of his holiness. The glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. What is his holiness? His otherness, his perfection, his flawlessness. His glory is the manifest beauty of his goodness. The Oxford, um, the Oxford handbook of theological or or, uh, systematic theology, pardon me. They define glory in this way. They say that the glory of God is the majestic perfection of his goodness. The majestic perfection of his goodness. The majestic perfection of his goodness. When you run into God's glory, you run into an experience, an encounter of the holy beautiful God who in his infinite wisdom has chosen to be good. He has chosen to reveal himself in his goodness. In his goodness. Now, goodness, the goodness of God, like his beauty, in some ways is hard to divine. In fact, that, you know, a lot of theologians, some theologians I went to try and read, they're like, no, you, can't, you cannot define the glory of God. It's an impossibility. It's not 
You cannot do it. But God does. <laughs> he simply defines it for us. He says, you want to know my glory? Then I want you to come and encounter my goodness. So I want to say to you that God's desire is to be good, for you, good to you. And he's going to be good to you because of himself. To reveal the wonder and the beauty of who he is. I think that most Christians live with a very low expectation of running into his goodness. We disqualify. I was praying the other day for a lady to receive healing. We have a Bible school. And so we're busy doing a thing on healing. And so uh, everybody leaves and she comes along and she just says, Where's, um, can you pray with me? And she kind of explains the issues. They're not embarrassing issues necessarily that you want to hide from everybody. But she says, you know what? Uh, yo, can you pray for us? So I said, okay, fine. So I'm, I'm praying and I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just giving it everything I got, you know, I'm praying. And we stop and she says, oh man. She says, you know, while you were praying, this thought just came into my mind that I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not worthy enough to, to do this. I thought, man, that's ridiculous. I'm like, I'm like, woman, pull yourself together. I didn't say that. I thought about it for a moment. I'm like, look at the cross. Look. Just look. What do you want me to see? It was for you. Every drop of blood that flowed out of his body. It wasn't spilled because that would, that, that would elicit a mistake. No, no, no. It was poured out, flowed out on purpose for you. For you. The goodness of God on display in that horrific act, God pours out his goodness upon the earth, upon all humanity. And he says, if you want to know, if you want to know my intent, the measure of my intent to be good to you, behold the cross. Look upon my son. Look upon the suffering lamb, this, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is my purpose. This is my intention to be good to you. I'm going to pour out my goodness, pour out my glory on you. This is what God wants to do. And so when we come in to experience his glory, there needs to be the sense of, I'm going to encounter his goodness. I'm going to encounter something of the, the wondrous nature of God to be generous and to be kind and to be compassionate and to be merciful. And so why should that lady have been healed? Why? Because he is holy. He is holy. God is not like you and me. Just take this rabbit trail. We're going to get into John 11 and we'll kind of wrap up on this thing. But you and I hold grudges. We shouldn't. We do. You and I only like to give to people what they deserve. We love the idea of justice. We love to see the baddies get it. Hey, we love. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like being overtaken by somebody on the, on the freeway and they're speeding. And they're like, you know, they're right up. They're coming right up. You first, initially, you think they want to kiss, but you know, that's not going to happen. And so they, and you're pulling. And as you're pulling out, they're kind of coming past you. And, and five kilometers down the road, you're just coming down. And all of a sudden, you see them being pulled over and they're getting a ticket. And you're like, praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Father, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner. And I'm so glad. Lord, let it be a big one. May they learn their lesson. Because we live, we live in a sense by, 
by that law. You, you get what you deserve, and if you don't deserve it, you shouldn't get it. But God is holy. And we define his holiness sometimes um, as his perfect austereness. You know, God is, yes, yes, you don't deserve it. Because <laughs> I'm perfect. You know, God's perfect. Sin cannot dwell in his presence because he's holy. No, sin cannot dwell in his presence because God is perfect love. And he cannot dwell in his presence because he, fix up, he fixes up whatever's broken. <laughs> when sin comes into God's presence, he fixes it. That's what the cross was. The cross was God taking responsibility for a mess he never made. When sin comes into his presence, he resolves the issue. He heals, he restores, he revives, he forgives, he makes all. He restores. That's what he does. That's his holiness. His holiness is not a rejection of everything that is impure. His holiness is his passion to make everything pure and glorious in the way that he intended. That's his goodness. And that's what God desires. So, now this morning, as you've seen a little further, and maybe understood a little clearer, hey, because he's better than you ever imagined him to be. He really is. He's better than you have ever imagined him to be. Go with me quickly to the book of John. As we gaze upon the majestic perfection of his goodness. Oh, the absolute manifest beauty of his holiness, his glory. John chapter 11. Now, John chapter 11 is the story of the death of Lazarus. It's a long portion of scripture. And for the sake of time, we're not going to run through all of it. So we'll set up the story a little bit. Jesus is in another town preaching the gospel. He's, he's about his father's business. He's doing what he's called to do. And he gets a message, pardon me, to say that his good friend Lazarus is sick. Lazarus is sick. And Lazarus needs Jesus' help. And so some people send for Jesus. Jesus is busy. He's doing the thing that God's called him to do. So he just stays. He stays. And Lazarus is sick and he's getting more sick and we know the story, Lazarus dies. But Jesus knows this. It's not like Jesus doesn't know this because it's the glory of the Lord manifesting his beautiful presence. <laughs> so Jesus knows this because, because at one point in verse 12 it says, Then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. <laughs> He's like, what's the, what's the deal? Because actually Thomas is saying, let's not go back there. There's a bit of trouble there, Jesus. You don't want to go. He says, however, Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Do it, sir, some mercy. And in verse 15, he says, and I'm glad for your sakes. Isn't that a ridiculous thing to say? Can you imagine? Your buddy dies and your other mate says, I'm glad for your sake. It's like, hey, this, Jesus, we love you. We've been following you for a while, but I don't know, things are getting a little strange around you. You know? He says, no, but I'm glad for your sakes. He says, that I was not there. He says, I'm glad I wasn't there. He says, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. I want to say to you, Jesus is passionately in pursuit of helping you believe. Amen. Believe in what? <laughs> he wants you to believe. He wants you to believe. This life is so often a, a battle of believing. A battle of trusting in King Jesus. That he's faithful and good and for you. I have, and be honest and just be vulnerable, there have been times where you doubt. Things are so tough and so rough, you're thinking, man, is there even a God? 
what's going on? Then I read a little bit of N.T. Wright, and I'm like, oh, Lord, this man's so clever. He, he believes that I believe too. <laughs> but Jesus wants you to believe. He doesn't want you to oscillate, vacillate between believing and not believing. You know, the moment when Jesus is raised from the dead, he encounters the disciples and he walks into a room. He, he walks into a room where the disciples are and he encounters them and they have a wonderful time. And then Jesus leaves and then Thomas comes and they're like, hey, he was here. And Thomas says, mm, unless I see the marks in his hands and I put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. What does Jesus do? Jesus does not send an email and say, please, somebody fire Thomas. <laughs> He's like, I thought Thomas had the goods, but he doesn't get rid of him. No, Jesus comes back. And we go, oh, doubting Thomas. No, don't worry about it. See, this is our problem as a church. We always put our focus on people and doubts and things and whatever, but we should put it on Jesus. Jesus comes back and he goes, hey, Thomas, how are you doing, my boy Key? Yeah. He says, come here. Come, come touch. Come see. It's me. Jesus is saying, Thomas, I want you to believe. I've got a purpose and a destiny for life. I need you to believe. I want you to believe. I'm going to do everything that you might believe. God's not trying to trip you up or mess you up or run you out of town. No, he wants you to believe. He wants you to have a bold, passionate, courageous faith. He does. And he wants that for your life. And so he's going to come to encourage you. Why? Because he's good. And he's good in a way you never imagined. He's good in a way that's otherworldly. He's good in a way that keeps angels locked into his image, declaring holy, holy, holy. Oh, man. He's better than the lotto. He's glorious. And he wants you to believe. In the next portion, uh, it just says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He encounters Martha. So he, he comes back with his disciples and he encounters Martha. And Martha says these words to Jesus. And this really, really rocked me. This kind of got my attention in, in a wonderful way. At the end of um, 2019, so we came into 2020, and I was just praying and I was saying to the Lord, Lord, what, what do you have for our church? What do you have for the church? What are you up to? What are you doing? And the Lord began to speak to me about a decade. And I felt like the Lord was saying to me, where's in the next 10 years, I'm going to do something glorious. And I was like, okay, tell me about that, Lord. What do you want to do? And God took me to this portion of scripture. And I read these words of Martha. And Martha says to the Lord, she says, Lord, if you had been here, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. And a little later on the story, Mary says the exact same things to Jesus. She says, Jesus, if you were here, I know that my brother wouldn't have died. And I began to think, I'm like, what are you trying to say to me? I think that up until this point, both Mary and Martha, who were following Jesus faithfully, loving him and serving him, they had seen him do remarkable things. They had seen him heal the sick. Maybe they, they were there that day when Peter's mother-in-law got better. Or maybe they were there in the crowd that day when that woman with the issue of the blood had pressed through that crowd and touched the hem of his garment. And Jesus turned around and said, who touched me? And maybe they were part of the crowd that backed away and they were like, well, we're looking at one another. I didn't touch him. Did you touch him? I don't know. But then the, that whole thing unfolded. And maybe they were part of the crowd that followed Jesus to Jairus' house and they heard and when they came out, when Jesus, Peter, and Johnny come out, that, that, that Jairus' daughter hadn't died. But that God, well, she had, but Jesus had done this glorious thing, hey, that he healed her, made her well again. And maybe they had encountered all those kinds of things, but they had lost this perspective that God could raise the dead. They'd lost that. And they were sure that he could heal, but they weren't sure that he could raise from the dead. And I felt like the Lord said to me, where's, you know what? The church is in the same place. 
The church thinks I can do certain things, but I can't do other things. And over the next 10 years, I just felt the Lord saying, the next decade, the church is going to see me do things they never imagined I could do. They never believed I could do. And so for both Mary and Martha, they believed Jesus could do so much and no more. And I want to say to you, church, God in revealing His glory wants to do something way beyond that. And so Jesus comes along and He, and he stands at that tomb to raise Lazarus from the dead. You know it. You know the story. But I want to take you quickly to verse uh, 33. It says, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came there weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, come, Lord, and see. And then verse 35, it says, and Jesus wept. Jesus wept. In verse 38, it says this, and Jesus again groaning in himself. So in verse 33 and in verse 38, it uses this word groaning. In the NIV, it says he, he was deeply moved. He was deeply moved. So we read the story and we go, oh man, Jesus loved Lazarus. Oh, he was so deeply moved. He groaned in himself and he wept. He was sad about Lazarus' death. And I think there was some emotion there. But if you look at that Greek word, there is something so glorious buried there for you and I. I want to just read some stuff to you. I want to share this with you and we'll kind of wrap this all together. But the Greek word there is the word embri myomai. I'm Portuguese, not Greek, so I probably wrecked that. But when that word is used outside of the, the New Testament, when it's used outside of the Bible, what it means is it's in reference to a, a horse that is flaring its nostrils in anger. Anybody ride a horse? <laughs> Anybody horse riding? So horses can be quite, quite dangerous. You know? And when they flare their nostrils and they kind of begin to stamp the ground, they're angry. That word outside of the Bible is only used in that reference. Was Jesus sad? Or was he enraged? Was Jesus weeping because he was sad his friend had died? Or was he angry at death? Used outside of the Bible, we can, it can refer to the snorting of a horse. Applied to human emotion, it invariably speaks of anger, not of sorrow. There's a guy named Schnackenberg. I'm like, his parents really should have thought through that one. But he indicates an outburst of anger. <laughs> He's a theologian. And any attempt to interpret it in terms of internal emotion, upset or upset caused by grief, pain, or sympathy is illegitimate. He's saying you can't do that. The word does not lend itself to that interpretation. G.R. Beasley Murray offers in a translation, he says, Jesus became angry in spirit. And D.A. Carson suggests he was outraged in spirit. B.B. Warfield comments forcefully, when John tells us in point of fact is that Jesus, pardon me, what John tells us in, is a point of fact, is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncomfortable grief, but of inexpressible anger. Wow. I want to tell you why. The Bible says that you and I were created for His glory. That above all creation, God has done something so beautiful with us. In Psalm 8, it said the angels look upon us and they say, what is man that you are mindful of him? Like, what is the deal with man? Well, if you go back to the garden very quickly, who were we? We were created in His very image and His likeness. To bear in us His glory, His character, and His nature. And when man sinned, what happened? That was taken from us. That was, that was put to death in us. We were no longer the image of him. We came into brokenness. 
But what does Jesus do? He restores that image to us. And you can imagine as Jesus is standing at the tomb and he's having a look into that tomb or he's having a look at the tomb, he is enraged because he says, man, I'm tired of this. I've had enough of death. I've come to destroy the works of the enemy. I've come to restore the glory of God upon man that he might believe and understand who I am, that I am the resurrection and the life. And in this moment, they see the goodness of God in the most profound and wonderful way. Jesus commands the stone to be rolled away, and he calls a dead man to life. And they see something they've never seen before. And it is glorious. Now, the Bible does not say for us, the, explain to us the emotion of that moment. It kind of ends <laughs> with that thing, hey, take off the grave clothes. But I don't, I don't know about you. I don't know what we, how we would have responded standing there just going, what? What did you just see? What, is this a joke? Is this, like a, is this a prank? Are we on some TV show? What is going on here? But God in that moment reveals his glory. Jesus says to them, did I not say to you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? Didn't I say to you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? To see the glory of God is to see his utter goodness, the perfection of his goodness. You know what his goodness looks like? It looks like the dead being raised. It looks like the deaf hearing. It looks like the blind seeing, the lame leaping for joy. It looks like his perfect peace upon your life. It looks like his wisdom leading you. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that God made Jesus to be wisdom for you. The goodness of God is you not knowing what to do and all of a sudden His Spirit comes upon you, calm, peace, and wisdom grips you and you know with a confident faith, Jesus has got this. It's the glory of God. It's the goodness of God. And we are a people who are to carry His glory. And read that scripture out of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Isn't that beauty? How is the earth going to be filled with the glory of the Lord? By you. And me. We are those that are to carry his glory into the world. What does that look like? His goodness. You and I are to be committed to revealing the perfection, the majestic perfection of his goodness wherever we go. <laughs> On that day, in front of that tomb, a cosmic battle raged. The horrific, putrid imperfection of death faced off with the beauty and perfection of God's eternal glory. And Jesus didn't shed tears of sorrow and grief. He shook in rage at what death had done with his glorious creation. And I want to say to you, I just have the sense that as the church, God is going to restore the effects of his goodness, the, the glory of his goodness, when you and I become fed up with anything else. When we begin to say, you know what? I choose only to live in the glory of his presence. I choose to live only with him. And he sends me in his power and his glory, in his name, to be a blessing. To reveal his glory and his grace. Now, that doesn't just look like miraculous healing. It looks like tenderly loving your neighbor who can't put food on their table by buying them groceries. 
And it looks like visiting that aunt who nobody else loves and she's in hospital, but you go. And you just sit with her and you pray with her and you love her and you tell her about Jesus. And you show her the one that calls the dead to life. And you point her at the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. That, that scripture in Ephesians, that we were talking about the praying Ephesians 1. I think it's 9, somewhere about 17 or 18 or something. And Paul prays, he says, Lord, um, pour out this, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. That the eyes of our understanding may be enlightened. Other versions say that our hearts may be flooded with your light. So that we may know the hope of your calling. The hope of his calling. What is the hope of his calling? That death will not hold you. That death will not have its way with you. The hope of his calling is that he has called you into a glorious, fruitful life. In his righteous power. In his manifested glory. The hope of his calling. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. There is a glorious deposit of his infinite beauty that is in you. And it is magnificent. And it is, it is overflowing. And it is wonderful. But you know what? We don't believe. That's not to chastise you. That's to not make you think you listen. No, I want to call you out of that to believe again. Come on. Wake up, church. Look what's in you. Look what's alive in you. When you look in the mirror, stop seeing the gray hair and the nose you would not have picked. Kareem looked at me today. She was like, you should let me take you to the lady that does my eyebrows. I'm like, what's wrong with my eyebrows? <laughs> They're perfect. No. The point is we're so mesmerized by all of this. We're so, we're so embarrassed by all of this. We're so taken in by all of this that we forget what's in here. This glorious, wonderful presence of the King. That for all of eternity, the angels have been mesmerized by His beauty and His splendidness and His wonder. And He has chosen to live in you. All that they are mesmerized, has chosen, mesmerized by lives in you. His presence is in you. And He's chosen us to carry His presence, to fill the earth with His glory. And we're worried about every little thing that's going on in our life. I look like this. I don't have that. I'm like, oh my goodness. The hope of his glory. Or the hope, of, the hope of his calling. The riches of his glory, his inheritance in the saints. And then it says, and the exceeding greatness of his power toward those who believe. The exceeding greatness of his power. You know what Jesus did at the tomb, at Lazarus' tomb, is he put on display the power of his glory. He put on display the magnificence of his infinite power. And he did something nobody thought was possible. He told a dead man, wrapped up and buried, to come back. <laughs> and I know for most of us, through myself, we wrestle with that. We wrestle with that. I'll tell this not to, to create, I'll tell you two quick, my dad, when my dad passed away, I went to go raise him from the dead. I felt like he needed to be raised from the dead. So I went to a Morgan Cox and I drove down there, I phoned my buddy, I'm like, we're going to go raise my dad from the dead. He was like, we're going to do what? <laughs> I'm like, come. And we, man, we, I got to that morgue, I said to the guys, I'm here, I want to see my father, 
get them up. You know, they were like, what? We don't, no, no, I'm praying for them. They were like, and they left me in the room with this lifeless frozen body. And I prayed my ollie off. I called, I commanded, I, you know. And my dad stayed dead. Now, I don't say that to garner your, your sympathy. I just say, I know what dead looks like. And standing there and seeing the impossibility of that circumstance, that situation, and yet my glorious king has power over that. He has power over that. And the, and the glory of that power is buried within you. Now, God is sovereign and does whatever he wants to do. Corner a number of years ago, we had a place a young girl drowned in the pool. She was dead. She drowned in the pool. Her hair got stuck into the jets. The, it was a big jacuzzi pool. And she had been playing with my children. They were all swimming there. I called my kids. We got up to lo- go, and she carried on, and her hair got sucked into the thing, and she was drowned. And we had walked about 100 meters back to, well, not 100, but about 50, 60 meters back to our chalet, probably 10 minutes after I'd called my kids and gathered them, and we were walking. And her brother found her in the pool. He couldn't pull her out of the water, and he's screaming for help. I turn around, I'm like, I don't even know what's happening. I just see this boy crying. I run back to the pool. I try and pull this girl. I cannot get her out. I just scream out, in the name of Jesus. And she came out of the water. I'm like, okay, I can't do this, but baby, you can. I put her onto the side of the pool. I was not thinking Jesus raised the dead. I just started to pray in other tongues. I said, I don't know what to do. And the foam came out of her mouth. She had, every, everything had, you know, she had sold herself. It was, it, she was dead. And I just began to pray in spirit, rebuke a spirit of death, pray in other tongues were praying. And Cole looks at me and she's like, do CPR, do something, you know. And so we start CPR on this young lady and we're just praying. People are gathering. We don't, her grandparents come up. It's just crazy. After about eight minutes, hey, of CPR and praying, and people are praying. I don't know where these people came from, but there were a lot of Christians at that resort that day. Everyone was praying with me, you know. And all of a sudden she breathed and she but she just wasn't in her right mind. And she was screaming and couldn't talk to her and she was doing all weird things. And we managed to get up to the hotel lobby and the ambulance came about an hour later, hey? an hour and 40 minutes later. And they took off um, to the hospital. And Corn and I went home that night. We, my heart, I'm a sensitive kind of person to those things. You know, like we just, we spent three hours, uh, uh, we put our kids to bed and we prayed until like three o'clock in the morning in their lounge. We just prayed in tongues. We just prayed. We, we didn't know what we were praying for. We just prayed. I think I was praying for myself more than anybody else. I was like, Lord, I feel tormented. I'm like, I'm traumatized. What are we doing? And about two days later, we were sitting um, in the lounge of that little holiday place. And I was watching some TV or we were sitting there. And in, the, in walked this little girl with a chocolate. <laughs> and she said something in Afrikaans. So, Womack will say, donkey. And they'd say, donkey. You know. She was laughing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how God does these things, but he does them. And it's for his glory. And we are those that carry his glory. I want to awaken in you the wonder of who he is. The splendidness of who he is. That he is in your life and upon your life. And he is in you and on you to make himself known. To make himself known to those that are around you. Your neighbors, your work colleagues. That guy who hates you at at the office. He's always saying things about you. He's in desperate need of Jesus. They're in desperate need of Jesus. And we carry the glory and the splendidness of him. But you know what, church? If we're constantly keeping our eyes down here and not beholding the wonder of who he is, we'll never get that. We'll never get that. You know why your life is so busy? 
You know, you know why, the, why your eyes go from one screen to a bigger screen, back to another screen? <laughs> it's because the, the enemy wants to keep you. He wants to keep you disillusioned. He, want to keep, he wants to keep your focus on other things. What are you saying? Just spend your life in the Bible. I think things would be different if it was. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm, I'm just saying that if we live differently, because we believe differently about who is in us and who's on us and what's going on, I think we see more of his glory. And I think that what God wants to do in this next season is to mesmerize not just us, but the world. And the question is, are we up for it? Are we ready to contend for it? Do we want to make known his glory to the nations? Do we want to make his beauty known? The perfection, the majestic perfection of his goodness wherever we go. What would it be like if we woke up with that thought in our minds? Lord, I want to reveal your goodness today to somebody somewhere. <laughs> Come on, let's do it. Let's go. Let's go. And you ask him. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of John, it says that one of the things the Holy Spirit would do is he would tell us of things to come. That scripture blows my mind. I read it. Let's times I read it, I just close my Bible, I put it down. I'm like, I don't want to read anything else. Lord, what? <laughs> come on. All right, tell me things. Tell me things, Lord. Tell me things. Remember Cornelius? Cornelius, the, the uh, Italian um, guy in charge of an army. What was he? Like a centurion or something like that. I don't know. But he's praying. And an angel appears. And the angel says, listen, so what I want you to do, I want you to send somebody to this street in this town to call for this man. He even said, Simon Peter, he's staying at this other person's house, Simon Tanner's house. Whoever has had the Holy Spirit tell you that kind of stuff? You know why? Because we read it and we go, oh, that was Peter. Oh, God needed a story for the Bible. Nonsense! <laughs> Nonsense! It's what he does with human beings. It's what he does with men and women who receive his glory. Say, yes, Jesus, I want to walk with you. Yes, Jesus, let's do this awesome, glorious thing. Let's reveal the otherness of God, the wonder of God, the absolute perfection and majesty of your goodness. Let's do it. So tell me. Where are we going? Tell me of things to come. I want to tell you right now, Christianity is not for professionals. It's not. As beautiful as Gary and Louise teach in this house, on a Monday morning, when they get up and face the world, they face the world just like you, as a witness. As a witness. The question is, what are you a witness to? What have you seen that nobody else has seen? What have you encountered about the majesty and the wonder and the beauty of Jesus that you need to testify to? That you need to let somebody else know about him? About the wonder who he is? You read the book of Acts, it's filled with all kinds of crazy things like that. It's the normal Christian life. It's the normal Christian life. That the God who knows everything lives in you. And if you will say to him, let's do it. Let's do this. Let's Let's live this life. I want, to, I want to make your goodness known, your glory known. You see, that's what your beautiful team did down in Amen Sometime. Maybe the worship, can the worship team come up? Would that be okay? That's what your beautiful team, that none of them were professionals. Any of them full-time professional people? Like pastors that have just traveled the world preaching the gospel, raising the dead? No. Because God doesn't need professionals. He needs lovers. He needs those that have looked upon him and seen the wonder of his glory. 
He needs those who just close their eyes and say, you are all, you are all together beautiful, my love. And there is no flaw in you. You are perfection. (laughs) You are perfection. And you know what, Lord? The only right and proper thing to do with perfection is to share it with others. I want to make you known. I want to make you known, Lord. So you're a teacher at a school. You're not a pastor preparing sermons. That's okay. That's okay. God has disguised you as a teacher and hidden you in his field for his glory. Maybe you're a mechanic. You're a mechanic as you're fighting engines all day. But it's okay. It's okay. His glory's in you, and he's hidden you as a mechanic in that workshop for his glory. (laughs) And so you can be fixing that car, and you're saying, Lord, who's coming in today? And the Father says to you, Lord, there's a man who's going to come and drop this car today. And he's lost his wife, and he's been drinking, and he wants to end his life. And I want you to love him and tell him I love him. And I want you to pray for him because I don't want his life to end. I've got something for him. We have a friend that we met recently, Carmen. She's a police officer. I think you guys might know part of, part of NCMI kind of thing. She says she's a police lady. She's a, she's a strong, big lady. She says riding in a police van as a young lady and going down and she saw this man walking up the road and he was just looking... And as she was in the car, she heard the Lord say to her, shout out the window that Jesus loves him. She was like, oh, dear Lord. That's going to be weird. This is back in the days when the police vans were yellow. You know, she was like, oh, I can't do that. You know, I'm not going you know. And so she said she didn't. She said a couple of weeks later, she was in a church. She was doing some stuff there, and she saw that man. True story. And she couldn't, she, eventually she got to him, she was like, oh, you know what, the other night I saw you, she blamed the situation, and she said, you know, the Lord, I just felt like I should have shouted out the window that Jesus loves you, and he says, I wish you had. Sure. He said, for the last number of years, I've been a Satanist. In the last month or so, I've gotten born again. But he said, that night I was walking on the street, he said, I felt so tormented and so conflicted. I wasn't sure if I was going to keep serving Jesus. I wish you had. You see, this is the wonder of what we get to live with. The beauty of Jesus rushing into the lives of other people to heal and restore and revive and make new and love and pull out of darkness is in us. Because the God who knows all things dwells in you and he'll tell you of things to come. The Holy Spirit just didn't move into you because it's like living in the Hilton and he's just feet up, just loving the good life. No, a lot of you are hard work. I'm just teasing. I'm allowed to say that. I apologize. Okay, we will set this one. I'm just teasing. He lives in you for a greater purpose. For a greater purpose. But maybe, just maybe as Christians, we live, by, we live mesmerized by so many other things. And there is nothing more beautiful than him. There is nothing more glorious than him. Right? 